Italy's got to be one of the most visited and explored countries anywhere. People just love Italy. But it's important to get off the beaten path, to find places that are just a little quirky and different. We're going to talk about a place that is about as quirky as it comes right now, a place called Calcutta, Calcutta in Italy, a little hill town 30 miles north of Rome. I'm joined by David Farley, and David's written a book after living there for a while called An Irreverent Curiosity in Search of the Church's Strangest Relic in Italy's Oddest Town. David, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Italy's Oddest Town and the Church's Strangest Relic. Explain. Well, I'll start with the town uh, Calcutta, which has been around, no connection to the Indian metropolis, spelled slightly differently. It's been around for, they say, a millennium or millennia. And the interesting thing about it is that it was relatively isolated for a long time. In the 1930s, the Italian government said that the town was possibly going to slip off the rock. And so they began building a new town about a half mile away, today called Calcutta Nuova, New Calcutta. And the town wasn't complete until the 1960s. And so when Calcutta was in the process of being abandoned, hippies and artists, perhaps taking refuge from the global meltdown of 1968, discovered this this beautiful medieval hilltown on 450-foot cliffs and decided to make it their own. So let's paint a picture here, David, about this town, because, I mean, this is your classic hilltown. It's on a, is it a kind of like a volcanic tufa plug? That's exactly what it is. It's, it's made of tufa stone. It's a small town, just a few hundred people, I would imagine, surrounded by 450-foot cliffs. And the erosion made the government make everybody evacuate, and they were going to tear it down. Yes, that's the official story. I mean, oh, okay. It turns out there was kind of cooked up political charges is the reason why. All over Italy, it was going got to be that abandoned. kind of stuff, yeah. But, but the, that's for another day. But the hippies uh, and the artists and the bohemians said, hey, free beds, free rooms, let's move in and inhabit the place. And uh, whatever the case is, the town survives today uh, in a quirky kind of second life with this bohemian artistic community. That's right. And now aging hippies live there. Many of them are artists, so you could consider it kind of an artist commune if you want. And they all have art galleries and they have restaurants. And during the weekends, particularly, Calcutta is very thriving. Lots of Romans come there on day trips and walk down the cobblestone alleyways and eat at the restaurants and look at the art. So people who might be traveling to Rome know this is an exciting side trip. And it it sounds like Calcutta in India, but it's spelled C-A-L-C-A-T-A. And I imagine you can get there in an hour or so by bus or train from Rome. You can. The best way is to rent a car, but because the bus journey is slightly arduous, mm-hmm. you have to take a light rail to an outer bus station in Rome called Saxa Rubra and then wait for a bus that takes about 40 minutes. Okay. So if you're driving north of Rome, you could swing by here in, in no time and have this sort of uh, odd experience to look at a medieval town that's filled with uh, artistic sort of um, bohemians and uh, probably kind of thriving now, a little trendy stuff going on. And at the same time, you said it's it's got a connection with the church's strangest relic. Yes. In the 16th century, there was a German soldier turned up after having sacked Rome with a huge army, and he had a little souvenir with him, and he was captured and put in a cell in Calcutta. He was let go a little while later, but he left this prize with him in the cell, and it was found 30 years later, and it turned out to be a a relic that in the Middle Ages was very prized. It was the Il Santissimo Prepuzio, the Holy Foreskin. The Foreskin of Jesus. That's right. Wow. Theologically, you could say the only piece of flesh he would have left on earth after he ascended into heaven. Now, was this a, a powerful relic in its day in the Middle Ages when people would travel all over Europe just to be in the presence of a relic? It was. In fact, it was so powerful, it, it had the ability to duplicate itself. Uh, in the Middle Ages, there were about a dozen towns 
most of them in France for some reason, go figure, who claimed to have uh, the holy foreskin. But of course, the one that was in Rome that was eventually taken to Calcutta was the only papal-approved relic. Does this go back to um, St. Helena, Constantine's mom, who, who went on a shopping spree in the Holy Land back in the 300s? One would think, you know, it's a, it's a very uh, educated guess from you. But in fact, as the story goes, it was Charlemagne, the 8th and 9th century king, who was apparently praying in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem when an angel, or some say the Christ child, gave him a little goodie bag of sorts of relics, and inside was the holy foreskin and the piece of the true cross. Um, of course, Charlemagne never went to Jerusalem, so this was just a story concocted to give the relic even more credibility than it would have normally had. So these relics, they go back, you know, to 1,500 years or something like that. And I mean, probably most faithful sort of Catholics who use these as worship aids probably realize it's not actually a true priest of the cross or actually, you know, the the toenail clipping of this saint or something like that. But it helps them worship. And the fact that it has a long history with the church and a thousand years of people worshiping there gives it some sort of viability. Is there anything to that? Yeah. What I learned from this book and what I found very fascinating about it was that now, and we have all these historical documents, and it seems very clear if you read all these documents that I dredged up, that it probably was not the real flesh of Christ. But what fascinated me was that people for centuries believed it really was the flesh of Christ, and they treated it as such. It doesn't matter to me that it wasn't real. What, right. As a student of history, it's that people believed it was. But as a pilgrim, that would give it more believability or more validity, I think, as thousands of people would travel all over Europe to visit these relics. Now, tell us the story. First, it was discovered in the 1500s. It was discovered in Calcutta in the 1500s. Was it a relic in Rome? I, I think I remember in your book you talked about the Sancta Sanctorum, the Holy of Holies. Exactly which is a great place to visit when you're in Rome. You can still visit it. At the top of the Scala Santa, right? Exactly. So when people go to Rome, there's a famous set of stairs that Emperor Constantine's mother, Helen, brought back from the Holy Land, which is the steps leading up to Pontius Pilate's palace, right? And yes. this, this would have been the stairs that Jesus climbed on the day he was condemned. That's right. And Constantine's mother, I can just see Constantine, oh, mom, did you have to bring that back? But she goes to the Holy <laughs> Land and she brings back the whole staircase. And this staircase now leads from right across the street from St. John Lateran. Yeah, San Giovanni and Laterano. So across the street from one of the most important churches in Christendom, it's a separate building where you've got these holy steps leading up to a room that is called the Holy of Holies, where throughout the Middle Ages, the most precious relics were kept. I mean, it was just like a treasure trove of all the ultimate relics. Exactly. Now, this is the stairs that even today, countless people are climbing on their knees and uh, praying on each step or whatever the routine is. Yeah. And they, and 28 steps and a prayer on each step. Wow. And then they get to the top and they are greeted by the Holy of Holies. Tell me about the Sancta Sanctorum, the Holy of Holies. They're at the top of the Holy Steps in Rome. It wasn't until just uh, in the 20th century when women were allowed to enter the Holy of Holies, actually. So now it's more democratic. All you have to do is have two euros on you and you can enter this small, which is about the size of a normal size bedroom. It's quite barren. There's lots of ancient frescoes. It's really beautiful. The only relic that you can see there today is a chunk of the table that they used for the Last Supper, which is still tacked to the wall. But in its day, it probably looked like um, St. Paul's attic or something. It had all sorts exactly. of there were stuff in it. The heads of St. Peter and Paul. There were lots of relics of early martyrs. And of course, there was the Holy Foreskin. So the Holy Foreskin was there. And then it turns up in Calcutta. And then people got a little bit embarrassed about talking about the foreskin of Jesus, I mean, a piece of Jesus's penis. So what happened in 1900? 
In 1900, it turns out some of these other towns in France that were famous for having a holy foreskin in the Middle Ages suddenly rediscovered their holy foreskins as well. And uh, the Pope just decided to put an end to this It got ridiculous. You got all these people talking about this foreskin, and if only one is right, and even that is debatable. Exactly. So the Pope, Pope Leo XIII, in the year 1900, made a papal decree saying that anyone who spoke about or wrote about the holy foreskin would face excommunication. Forbidden to discuss it, except in your book you say on New Year's Day, right? Exactly. On New Year's Day in Calcutta, because until the Vatican II reforms, New Year's Day on the church calendar was the day of the Holy Circumcision. And so in Calcutta, when they had the relic, and even afterwards, they do a New Year's Day procession in honor of the Holy Foreskin. With the foreskin, they would take it out of the church. In fact, after the 1900 papal decree, it was the only time that they took it out of the church. So if you want to talk about the Holy Foreskin, you just got to jump on that opportunity January 1st every year. It's a great tradition. And I understand they didn't even call it the prepuzio or whatever the Italian word is for foreskin. They called it just simply the relic. Yeah. I mean, you weren't allowed to say the name of the relic after the 1900 papal decree. You could just refer to it as the relic or cosa thing, but they didn't want it mentioned at all. So if you get to Rome on your travels and you meet a priest, you could kind of get him aside and say, hey, tell me about the relic. Like the priest in Calcutta, he cites this papal decree for the reason why he can't talk about the relic. But come back on January 1st and I'll give you an earload. (laughs) <laughs> I don't even know if he can, if he'll talk about it then. The reason why the book's called An Irreverent Curiosity is because later on when someone asked a church official why they banned the speaking of the holy foreskin, this church official said is because they worried it could cause an irreverent curiosity. Well, I can imagine. I'm very interested in the theological kind of puzzle created by the Nicene Council. I understand in the year 325, they're going to try to organize and set the tenets of Christianity theologically And they had a council where all the church leaders across the land gathered in Nicaea. And they came up with the Nicene Creed, which Christians say in in church almost every Sunday. And the conclusions from the debate on was Jesus actually God or not really had an impact on the importance of this relic. Is that right? Early Christianity is fascinating. And there were so many conflicting and different views of trying to define who Jesus Christ was. And so it came down to this, the Council of Nicaea in the year 325, which is in modern-day Turkey. And they were arguing over one word in Greek, which I can't pronounce. In fact, it's only one letter off, literally an iota. And the definition of the word, of the two different words, was, is Christ made of the same stuff as his father or of similar stuff? Hmm. And in the end, they decided Christ is made of the same stuff. So he became part of the Godhead along with his father. So is that that line, um, Jesus was begotten, not made? Right. Christians, we say that every Sunday, Jesus was begotten, not made. And I don't think any of us really know what that means. But that was going back to the Nicene Creed to say, is he similar to God or actually God? And basically, if you believe in the Trinity, then Jesus is one with God. And that makes the foreskin actually a piece of God still here on earth. Exactly. And at the same time as this council was going on, as you mentioned, St. Helena, Constantine's mother, was in the Holy Land collecting all these relics. And so she came back after this sanctified shopping spree and really set Europe on a course for relic veneration for centuries to come. She even had the the sign that was on top of the cross that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. As the story goes, she she did come back with that Incredible. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with David Farley, and David's written a fascinating book called An Irreverent Curiosity in Search of the Church's Strangest Relic in Italy's Oddest Town. David, when you studied this, you had to get into the Vatican's actual historic library. Tell us about that and what challenges that gave you. 
Boy, I still can't believe they let me in. <laughs> you just said, I'm doing a book about Jesus's foreskin. Can I come over on Wednesday? Yeah, I tried to you know, keep that very quiet about what my research was, stating that I was just researching Calcutta, which, which wasn't a lie because the relic's history is Calcutta's history and vice versa. And so a woman in Calcutta who has researched the holy foreskin for years named Patrizia, she made a deal with me. She wasn't willing to help me at all in my quest to find out what happened to this bizarre relic in Calcutta. And one day she finally made a deal with me and said, if you can get yourself into the Vatican Library, I will tell you where there are a ton of documents about this relic. And she said, the reason is because she said, as a known holy foreskin expert, I feel that when I'm at the Vatican Library, I'm being shadowed and watched. Whether or not that, that's true is another story. Wait a minute. Patricia is a known holy foreskin expert? Self-proclaimed, but yes. And then so she figures she's under a little bit of security whenever she walks around doing some studying within the Vatican walls. Exactly. You just can't Google Jesus and foreskin. You can now. <laughs> well, you can now and you'll get your name. But um, but right. if, if you wanted to really do primary research, you got to go to the Vatican and read these old, old books in what, in Latin? Some are in Latin and some are in a kind of archaic Italian. Wow. Now, when you're dealing with the Vatican, it's serious business. I know that when I ask tour guides about sort of um, scandalous issues about how do you get into the Vatican Museum and so on, nobody will say anything upsetting about the Vatican because they know the power of the Vatican if you get in on their bad side, just in the practical reality of life in Rome. Did you encounter that at all? Um, I didn't, but then again, since the book has come out, I have not tried to go back. <laughs> so I think this might be my, my last shot has expired for trying to get into the Vatican Library again. They took your library card away. Yes, exactly. It's been revoked. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with a courageous man who just got his Vatican Library card revoked for researching a book, fascinating book, and a reverent curiosity in search of the church's strangest relic in Italy's oddest town. Now, David, we're talking about Italy's oddest town, and, and in your book you call it bewitching, but it's mostly um, populated by expats and, and bohemians and newcomers. It sort of it was a dead town, and then a bunch of squatters moved in. Uh, how is that bewitching? Well, it's bewitching when you're approaching the village. It's it's bewitching in that it's this, you know, medieval hill town sitting like a cupcake on top of 450-foot cliffs. And then the interesting thing is that you ascend the S-shaped passageway, the only way in, the only way out, not big enough for cars, so it's completely pedestrianized. And you see these people living there, Italians, there are a few Americans, a few Spaniards, a few people from Northern Europe. You know, some of them look a little bit differently. A lot of them have spent time in India, so sometimes they're wearing hmm. kind of, you know, subcontinental flavored clothes, and so on. One guy looks just like Gandhi. I've got a favorite town that's just a little north of Calcutta, which is Civita di Bagnareggio, in the same state of Lazio. It sounds like Calcutta is just sort of like Civita, another, what's the Italian word for dead town, a citta morta or something? La citta morta. But uh, la citta morta Calcutta was inhabited by these people to give it another life. We're talking about the state of Lazio, if somebody's traveling around there, what would the, the three um, interesting things in the neighborhood be to, to check out? Well, besides Calcutta, um, Civita di Bagnareggio is a must-see, I would say. And then another one is Viterbo, which is the regional capital of northern Lazio. And it's a gorgeous, gorgeous town with massive medieval walls around it. It used to be a refuge for the popes in the Middle Ages, so there are lots of papal palaces and huge churches and cathedrals and so on. With a memorable spa. And yeah, my favorite thing to do in Viterbo, uh, which is totally off the tourist radar because it's sandwiched between Tuscany and Rome, is to go to these wild sulfur spas that dot the landscape outside of the old walls. They're just in the middle of a field. You can spot them because there's steam coming up and some, you know, bathers 
bobbing up and down in the water. But you park your car, there are no services, no changing rooms, no refreshment stands. It's totally wild. You just change in the car, get on your bathing suit, walk up and plop into these steaming hot sulfur springs. And that's really a unique experience. And a quite historic opportunity to, to go to a, a very old spa. It is. The most famous one is called Bulikame, and it's also just right outside the walls. And it's famous because uh, Dante referenced it in the Inferno. Okay, so three very interesting places to check out as you're driving north of Rome, heading for Florence or whatever. If you give yourself a day, you can check out Calcata, C-A-L-C-A-T-A. You can go to Viterbo, V-I-T-E-R-B-O, and check out the spa and the remnants of the papal enclave. And Civita di Bagnareggio, C-I-V-I-T-A, Civita di Bagnareggio. So if you're traveling north of Rome, you want to drop by these towns, give yourself a day, and keep an eye open for a silk satchel with a ribbon tied around it. David, where is the Holy Foreskin today? Well, I could say that you should read the book. However, that would be kind of mean of me just to leave it at that. So I will say that one of the popular theories in Calcutta about what happened to the relic is that the Vatican stole the Holy Foreskin. And I will just say that that, that theory is not necessarily incorrect. If you found the Holy Foreskin a little bit of an embarrassment, that might be a reasonable thing to do if you were the church with a capital C. It's true, especially if it's coexisting among all these hippies and so on. I got it. David Farley, author of An Irreverent Curiosity in Search of the Church's Strangest Relic in Italy's Oddest Town. Thanks so much. Thank you. Each year, Rick Steves' tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Italy and beyond, one small group at a time. This year, we're featuring tours of Venice, Florence, and Rome, the heart of Italy, Village Italy, South Italy, and Sicily. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.